Y'all, welcome back to the Think Peace podcast. I'm your host, Sarah M. Chapel, and today we have a very, 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 very special guest, one of my absolute favorite people who it turns out has like the most perfect uh, <laughs> experience, both in work and academics, to address my favorite topic of the past year. And by favorite, I mean, I wish we weren't talking about this, but I'm glad we are. Catherine DeVos Divine. Uh, Catherine is a lawyer, uh, a founder, founder of Implement Legal, and an art historian, and an intellectual property expert, and a small business law expert, and really just a delight. Um, Catherine, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you, as I always am. So uh, who are you? What do you do? What is your work in this world? Ah, well, most of the time I'm a lawyer. Uh, I practice intellectual property law, so copyright and trademark, business law, and estate planning. And in our firm, they all work together. We tend to do a really holistic kind of cradle to grave approach with the clients and their creations. Um, I'm also an art historian. Um, I'm a specialist in contemporary art, specifically appropriation art and copyright law. And I'm a caretaker of small creatures, uh, like the child and the pets, um, and human, but yeah. Um, Catherine, so obviously if, Here's here's my layup, guys. Um, if you can't gather from Catherine's specific background, why I'm so excited to talk to her, besides just the fact that she's brilliant, um, like AI, um, like we're we're like we're in this moment where I just I remember when the generative AI stuff started kind of really blooming in 2023, and I immediately thought of you because you have the unique intersecting experience to actually be able to. Um, analyze this both historically and contemporarily, um, and especially through this lens of business. So we're at this really interesting moment at the time of this recording, literally like a day after another media bloodbath in terms of people getting fired, um, huge mismanagement of major um, news media and kind of the the creation of knowledge in our world, both in academics, media, et cetera, um, in the face of, and while in this particular layoff scenario, there's nothing that's been said specifically about AI, but kind of in the face of generative AI as something that is able to make content or make content faster or to remix old stuff into purportedly new stuff that can be bought and sold. And at the same time, right, we have two major lawsuits going against OpenAI and Microsoft. Um, for listeners who don't know, uh, Microsoft owns a large stake of OpenAI's for-profit arm. The structure of that company is super weird. Um, and they're being sued by both um, a class action lawsuit from the Authors Guild, so by primarily fiction writers, I believe, um, including a lot of people you probably love, and then also the New York Times. And I know the New York Times suit in particular is suing based off of the fact that what they're producing, that the AI is producing is like very similar to or directly the same as copyrighted work. But we also have this idea of it being trained on this big model of copyrighted work, regardless of what it's producing. And uh, Catherine, like, I just don't know, man. Like, what is going on? What does this mean? What, like, are, what's going to happen? Help. Yeah, so I and 
my partner. Um, I should know also my, when I say my partner, he's both my husband and he's my partner um, at Implement Legal. We both take the position that AI is the printing press. I mean, we are looking at a form of technology that is as transformative as you know, the, the institution that gave us books and newspapers. Um, and I'm, I could say it's as transformative as the internet, but in many ways, it's more analogous to the printing press. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because when I look at the landscape, I'm not only looking at it as a lawyer, I'm looking at it as an art historian. And I was at Duke for a very long time. I got four degrees and one of them was a master's in art markets. I actually spent time studying the early modern period and the art and technology and market structure of the Netherlands around the time of the printing press. Because I was so curious to know how did people react and what sorts of economies were born as a result and what sorts of laws were introduced. And what I find most interesting about the arguments made by the developers and CEOs and investors um, who have brought us AI is that they are very eager to constrict copyright law, to constrict the rights of the individuals who are producing the content that becomes part of their training models and eventually their outputs. Copyright law was created in response to the printing press. It was inaugurated in order to give humans more control in the face of technology that took control of their creations away from them. And so I see us as in many ways being in a historical moment that requires transgenerational thinking, both looking back at the past and saying, what can we learn from periods when we have introduced technologies like the printing press, the internet, Napster is a really good one. Um, and also, can we take a beat and take a breath and look forward and ask, what do we want the next generations to look like? I mean, do, do we even want AI to be part of our lives? And if so, how? And can we start taking some steps independently as a collective um, in response to these institutions to use it in a way that's really ethical. Um, if not, you know, you're asking me what, what is going on, where are we right now? There are a small group of extremely powerful people with an extremely powerful technology in their hands who are making extremely impactful decisions very quickly. And as often happens, the courts are sometimes the only checks on these individuals and their plans. And so that's what I see happening is we've got technologists, sometimes like themselves, running headlong to the future. And we have individuals bringing claims in court to say, can you slow this process down a little bit, please? Um, this is impacting me. This is impacting others. And the courts, as frustrating and slow and draconian and old-fashioned as they can be, are at times really wonderful institutions for bringing in a little bit more reason and logic and care. Precedent. You know, when you're talking about this, mm -hmm. a couple different points here, right? And like, thank you for like just immediately being this like calm voice of reason. Like, I get so worked up on this. I'm so annoyed. Like at Davos last week, I even say that right. Sam Altman's like, oh, we can't wait to sell open AI to the government for, you know, defense, which is something they explicitly said that they would never do. And it's like, you know, I'm like, I can't trust a word mm -hmm. that comes out of 
these guys' mouths, right? Um, which is, I think, a healthy way to move through working with these people and, and their ideas. But like, like it, it's so obvious to me what the end game is in the sense of this being primarily like a defense thing. But when we're looking at this, what you're talking about, this kind of this almost is like the draconian slowness of the law as a way to to ask these questions. What are you looking at when you're looking into the past and you're looking at and you're seeing the changes that came because of the printing press? What is the kind of precedent here that might help to inform how we can move forward? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so a more, more recent, recent example. example. Um, my, my partner, partner Rob and I sometimes move very slowly with new technology. technology. We can seem almost like Luddites. And do you remember what we were talking about like two years ago? Everybody's really excited about NFTs. And <laughs> last year, the year before, everyone was coming to the office. Oh my gosh, can you help me invent these NFTs? Can you talk to about, you know, NFTs to my group? And I said, no. I was like, I don't want to touch them. I'm not interested in them. I'm sorry. This is very dull to me because I saw them as being like Betamax. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Betamax VHS war and Betamax lost and we got VHS and it was a better technology and we used that for many years and then that was supplanted by DVDs and then that was supplanted by something else. And I tend to take a step back and look at the bright, shiny new thing and ask, is this a tool level? I mean, is this a, a very small market that's very hot right now? And how are taste and novelty and fashion affecting it? Is this something that really seems like it has a long term? And does it maybe have a permutation? It's going to come along really soon. That could be really exciting. So I think NFTs are super exciting for authenticating art, for tracking it, um, for creating registries, you know, maybe even a material that might flow into um, a database and a trainer. But I didn't find them very exciting for just sales purposes. And the same with AI. I think it's really important to just take a giant step back and go, okay, what, what's a positive use of this? And what would maybe the second gen of this look like? So to give you another example that's frequently talked about um, by journalists is thinking about Napster. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a very big deal when it came out. Also, I'm old enough to remember using Napster. But... Napster changed the landscape for the music industry. I mean, the RIA won their lawsuit, Napster went away, but now we have streaming and we have a different relationship with music. And artists, musical artists, have a different relationship with their fans. It has entirely changed the way that music is sold, marketed, listened to, user expectations, artists' expectations. And I get a lot more interested in trying to prognosticate that. Like, where is human behavior going? as a result of this new technology. Not sort of, is it bad or is it good? Less black and white than that. More, well, it's here. So what incremental steps are we going to see and incremental changes can we expect over the next 10 to 20 years based on the root of this thing? And what do you think we're going to see? I mean, I see a couple different, (laughs) a couple different paths that largely I think are a mix of, uh, human behavior. And then of course the incentives that come up both economically and legally, um, to corral that behavior. Uh, what, what does your, uh, what does your crystal ball show? Yeah. I'm 
far less concerned about open AI, mid-journey, Dolly, than I am about private in-house AI platforms. Like I'm really interested in whether or not Disney is creating its own proprietary platform. And some of the, fa- the facts floating around in public, the available documents suggest that they probably are. I mean, they have created an opening for a show, um, Secret Invasion, that was based entirely on AI, but they noted that it was only from in-house sources. Also, Disney has a massive animation research library, which they have been digitizing for many years, much longer than we've really been discussing AI. I'm much more curious about what it looks like, particularly for visual artists, say visual development artists, when Disney, Sony, other studios, they have in-house ways to create all of the visual content they need for their films. And what is that going to change for the visual development field? I mean, is do visual development artists have jobs anymore? And can that field be preserved through some kind of collective activism? Or do kids who want to be development artists need to start making other plans? So in the past, you know, if we want to use Napster as an example, sometimes the front runner gets a lot of the pushback. And they don't necessarily have the ability to move forward the way that a well-funded, private, and really singularly focused entity like Disney or Sony would. And so I'm much more interested in what's going to happen there. Yeah. What do you think? Like, what The Disney one is such a great example, right? Because they obviously have... Mm -hmm the copyright to a huge amount of work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Apparently Mickey Mouse anymore. And, um, and you know, their, their library, what they're digitizing, I'm sure there's a mix of things that they own and a mix, and things they probably don't actually own the rights to, um, but they have so much of that work. What, if any kind of legal recourse would there be? I mean, my guess is none um, Mm -hmm. other than maybe collective bargaining. And we saw some of that this past year in terms of how um, the writers and actors were negotiating um, their contracts. But when you look at something like that, where Disney actually does have this massive amount of intellectual property um, that they could Mm -hmm. conceivably do that. What, what are the options moving forward? And I mean, and less in a sense, like what should they be, but like, what, what do you Mm -hmm. see? Yeah. I mean, notably the authors guild, tends to be out front and historically over time authors textual authors tend to be out front copyright law was really written for them and it makes a lot of sense and i don't specifically know why there's more collective action among textually oriented creatives but there is there's very little among visual artists um that's an option resisting a contract saying i don't want to sign and very often that takes a more powerful player so, for example, actors saying, uh, no, you can't license my likeness um, or I won't give that over to you to be used in film. Keanu Reeves has done that. Um, and asking how many will it take to resist this and say, that's it's not a provision I'm going to engage in. The trouble is, I mean, many of these contracts have already been signed. So there are tons of extras who've actually been digitized for Disney, for Star Wars, and their faces are part of the database. Um, the other opportunity we have is as consumers. Um, some of what concerns me about 
in particular, the reproduction of actors who pass on is, I don't particularly want to see Star Wars 28 with the same actors cast as Luke and Leia. Like, I, I really am not interested in freezing culture circa 2022. Um, many great things were made, but it wasn't necessarily the best time. And I am concerned about continuously reproducing this you know, nostalgia that's rooted in this specific time. And I'm not sure how we, I don't have an answer for that. I'm not sure how we move beyond that, except as consumers prioritizing originality or responding with dollars or with written complaints, um, with collective action, that that's not what we want. Um, we're not interested in seeing that. Thanks. And we are seeing some of that with, say, the decline of Marvel Studios. There's a certain boredom with the continuous recycling of the same characters. It is. I mean, we're both old enough to remember when Marvel, when like this round of superhero movies really started in, I guess, the 2000s. Um, And it was actually kind of exciting. Huge blockbusters with like big stars and CGI was getting really good. And like, there was just... Like, and I was never a superhero person, but like I saw the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man probably like 20 million times. Mm -hmm. I feel like everybody ended up watching that movie. Like it was, you know, these like big cultural moments and to watch that decline is I think a really good example. Um, I mean, I think that is probably something that gives me the most hope is the sense of like, despite the, um, what, you know, the kind of popular belief that people's attention spans are so terrible that they don't care what they're consuming. I don't think that's actually true. And I think the, I think the Marvel is a really good example of that where people are like, actually, this is, this is kind of dumb. Um, so we have the kind of consumer pushback. We have the kind of creator pushback in the sense of, okay, if you are actually in a position of power to negotiate something like that, but at the end of the day, does Disney even need any of these people? Like, do they, do the they, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with Disney, not necessarily. And so as ever, it becomes a question of how do you negotiate with power differentials? And so that's an ongoing area of um, engagement and concern. I think to both of us is how do we create space for David to negotiate with Goliath? And it's very much why my firm was founded. That's who we represent. We are always on the side of David. Um, And it takes creativity. It takes finding a way to explain to Goliath that it's actually in the best interest. And sometimes it is. I mean, there are also, there's some really great historical precedent for this. Um, There used to be a time when fanfic was disallowed. Like, you couldn't make independent things and sell them on Etsy because Warner Brothers would hammer you. And then Harry Potter came along. And Warner Brothers tried to sweep eBay and Etsy of all of the Gryffindor scarves that they weren't selling. You couldn't buy any merch. And the fans said, okay, great, we just won't go to the movie. Thanks. And then they allowed it. And then they began selling their own merch. And then they began using Etsy as R&D. And so... One of the ways in which we find at the firm um, a very powerful tool for negotiation is not letting your powerful party use you as R&D. I mean, if you're in that gray space where you're dealing with Disney or Sony and you're, you have to understand that like 
you might be working with them and you might have to give a little bit. You might be allowing them to look at your creativity as part of their library and their ecosystem. And there's a certain loss of control there, but also there's a certain alignment with progressive principles around free speech where you're like, yes, I am part of the ecosystem. So it's always a give and take and there's a balance, which is such a lawyerly answer. But like it depends. It, it depends. depends. Yes. The ultimate lawyer answer. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I do, I, I do want to kind of bring it kind of into a little more yeah. narrow scope in a minute. Um, but before we do the, the piece about free speech is so interesting because I mean, I talk about like almost like a, you know, you just say like social security was like the third rail. I feel like free speech is like the new like third rail or, but in the sense that nobody can stop talking about it or trying to touch it, but also getting burned, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> also getting electrocuted. <laughs> and the free speech piece is such an interesting part. And I've seen people on all sides, um, you know, folks who are kind of on the far left and have a very like kind of anarchist perspective on intellectual property being really pro some of these models because it breaks down the, yeah. um, the conventions around copyright and IP. Um, but of course, to my mind, I'm like, yes, and all of that profit is going directly to Microsoft. Um, and then we have the people who are maybe the, these technocrats, these um, who have a strong tendency towards libertarianism, not to paint you all with a broad brush, but it does, it, there, there's some alignment there, um, who are also like, oh yes, this is free speech and we can do whatever we want. Um, there's kind of this, there's a chicken and egg thing. Like it's in this, it's in the service of some greater good so we can do whatever we want, right? The ends justify the means. Um, and then the the libertarian free speech argument. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I think it's something that's really thorny. And as, you know, something where I know, I feel like a knee-jerk reaction to somebody who has historically made their money based off of gating intellectual property, which is something I feel both uncomfortable with and also like need to pay my bills. Um, it's just a very interesting kind of moment for that conversation yeah so okay this is me getting extremely nerdy because we're now into like the the land of my doctoral dissertation um copyright law and free speech have an uneasy relationship because of course copyright is a monopoly on expression it's giving the right to um, distribute and display and reproduce this expression they one of the books behind me to one person. Whereas free speech should allow for imagination and play. It's it's also the wellspring of creativity. And it's a government grant, like copyright, to say what's on your mind and not to be censored or curtailed. And copyright law is in many ways a form of censorship. It is a way for a author or artist to say, hey, that's my zone. I've carved that out of the cultural soup and made that mine, and you can't play with my toys. So that way of describing the relationship between copyright and free speech is it looks at fair use as something that grows from free speech in the First Amendment and as a right that is held by a creator. So it treats fair use as, we can think of it as a carve-out to a copyright, that the monopoly extends, but only so far. Only so far as fair use cuts it off. 
That's one, one way to think about it. And in so many ways, it's a really um, beautiful, utopian, progressive, inclusive way of thinking about intellectual property. And to be completely transparent, it's exactly how I thought about intellectual property before I started practicing law. That's how I thought about it in law school and the beginnings of grad school and until I was really digging in to say deeper academic research and actual practice with actual human beings. Which brings me to the second way to think about fair use is as what's known as an affirmative defense. So in a case, if you're going to bring a lawsuit, there's there are rules. Uh, they're the rules of civil procedure. And it's kind of like the order of operations in that. You have to do certain things certain ways. And so in practice, fair use is an excuse. The plaintiff says, you infringed my work. And the defendant says, yes, I did. But I have a really good excuse. I have a really good reason for infringing your work. And it's called fair use. And I'm allowed to do it. One of the deeper underlying philosophical arguments happening when folks are having conversations about AI that they're not talking about on the surface is these two different lenses that you can use to look at the same thing. And what I have found in dealing with real human beings is that the first way, the fair use is my right way, you really got to look at the identity of the speaker because that's a really democratic, advantageous perspective to take. If David is speaking, when Goliath is speaking, it starts to look a lot like entitlement. It looks like a kind of capitalist entitlement to raw materials. I am the genius and everything before me everything on Instagram, every book, everything I can run through my scanning machine is just raw material for my genius and my vision of the future. And I have become very suspicious of that kind of justification for fair use. And so at the firm, we take the position that it's an affirmative defense, that it is the response to an act of infringement. You're like, yeah, I did it. And that's your copyrighted stuff. But I have a really good reason for doing it and I can justify my reasons. And we ask clients to go through that process. So when we look at something like the New York Times OpenAI mm-hmm. lawsuit, is yeah. that what you're anticipating? So we, I, I mean, because it's been kind of the public statement is yeah. that we have, we have a very good reason. Like that uh, mm-hmm. has been explicitly what, you know, Sam Altman and Elon Musk and all of these guys, all men running mm-hmm. these companies um, say. And so, and their reason is rooted in history and precedent. And so if we want to think about some cases, listeners want to do a little more research here. You know, I would have them look at Authors Guild Google. The recent Authors Guild suit is not the first one. The first one was against Google Books, and that was 2015. Google beat Oracle in 2021. And then Andy Warhol Foundation beat Goldsmith, which may ultimately actually be the most important of the three. The idea that copyright was created to promote the progress of science and the arts, I mean, that is its constitutional justification. That's its underlying principle. 
but what does progress mean? And that goes back to some of the intergenerational questions that I was asking in the beginning is, okay, well, what does progress really mean? And so if you read, for example, Mark Andreessen's comment to the Copyright Office justifying uh, OpenAI, it's, it's pretty disturbing because his justification of progress is really American hegemony. It's not necessarily some specific vision of a better future. It's greater profits today and dominance on the world stage. And I don't find that just, I don't find that to be a sufficient justification for fair use. In fact, I'm not sure it has anything to do with it. That's not a transformative purpose. Um, and so I hear these arguments around, well, well, we couldn't build the model if we didn't have access to unlimited inputs. Then you can't build the model. You know, copyright law exists. It's a fact. It was invented to prevent people like you from doing what you're doing. And it was invented all the way back in the early modern period for that reason. And why are you exempt? So I, it probably sounds somewhat suspicious, but most of the arguments I've heard from, you know, Musk or Altman or Andreessen, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, they have a, a very presentist flavor, despite the fact that they're talking about the future and the future that they want to see and build. It is a very self-centered future. It is a very entitled future. And it really is driven by profit, not progress. And copyright is not about profit. It is about intellectual, social, and cultural progress. And so I'm not, I haven't read a lot of good arguments about those zones. Yeah. One of the things I think that's interesting that you just kind of lit on, and I will mention you did a whole deep dive on the um, Andy Warhol Foundation suit on your newsletter. So we'll make sure to link that up in the show notes so you guys can read it because Catherine goes really in depth into that and ties it into this into this present moment and into these things. So I think that's a great, a great point for deeper research. Um, but you said, said something really interesting, right? That copyright is not for profit, it's to for progress. And the problem is that for the people who are creating these models and these companies, those two things are the same, right? They're not actually different. They don't, they don't view them as being right. different, right? There is no progress right. without profit and there is no progress yeah, profit is the progress. That is the proof of progress for them. Well, and there's a lot of judicial support for that position. And so actually what I'm writing and working on right now is a paper on um, Citizens United and the Andy Warhol Foundation. Um, and what I'm exploring is the ways that corporations, courts have actually identified that the, the purpose of a corporation is to maximize profits for shareholders. Um, and in Citizens United, that corporations have free speech rights. And so what happens when we have courts acknowledging that the purpose of a corporation is profit, and this profit-driven entity has free speech rights, then corporations suddenly have this backdoor into using fair use and saying, well, I have a reason to claim a fair use excuse because I need to make profits for my shareholders, which is a very shorthand, um, top level brief on what's a much deeper and more complex line of thought. But it comes out of 
Andy Warhol Foundation be Goldsmith because there's a really interesting and widespread problem in that case. Um, most people call it Warhol v. Goldsmith. Warhol's dead. The Andy Warhol Foundation is a corporation. It's a nonprofit corporation, but it's still a corporation. And can a corporation have a transformative purpose? So all of these arguments that are being made by AI developers and investors and CEOs are that their use is transformative. That really comes out of um, Authors Guild v. Google and Google v. Oracle. And a transformative purpose, this is part of fair use, is, is one that adds new insights, new aesthetics, something of value to the pre-existing material. Can a corporation have a transformative purpose? Is what Midjourney is doing transformative? It might, is it formally transformative? Is it contextually transformative? What does transformative mean in this context? And I'm not certain, and there, I mean, really, there is nowhere in fair use jurisprudence that profitability is a transformative purpose. That's, that's not the deal. That's not part of the four factors. There are four clear factors that establish a fair use purpose, nature, amount, and market harm. And, you know, we can make a lot of money has never been a fair use justification. In fact, it's an argument against. So there's a degree of irony in all of this to me. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'll be so curious to see. Well, I'm very curious to see what happens. <laughs> um, we don't, it's like, who needs art? We can just watch the real life. I'm totally kidding. Um, <laughs> some of this stuff truly is stranger than fiction. With with these kinds of things in mind, right, we have this kind of larger, almost like philosophical questions, right, which really are at the root of this. Um, and I think actually are a lot of the questions that smaller creators and smaller businesses are asking themselves are rooted in that. So we have that and we have this kind of looking forward, looking back, right, this, this bi-directional um, experience of time that you're inviting in, which is very different than the experience of time that our Andreessen's and our Musk's and our... Uh, our Altman's are interested in, um, I, uh, really is, is wild. Um, if you guys haven't read my in-depth rant on so <laughs> Mark Andreessen's techno optimist manifesto, you should <laughs> enjoy. Um, and but like, what does this mean both, I mean, in terms of today, but in this forward trajectory, for the kinds of businesses and artists that you work with, right? Because Catherine, yeah. works with, if you aren't familiar with Catherine, works with, like I've worked with Catherine, um, works with a lot of businesses that are in this online intellectual property space that are leveraging, yeah, I, IP as business, essentially, whether it is through art, whether it is through through digital business and other things. Like what, what, what does our future look like? Yeah, I mean, one of the wisest thoughts I have ever read on AI came from your initial essay that's in your newsletter. And you call back to the idea of the artist's hand. You know, that yes, the machines can create things now, but perhaps that makes creative work that has an identifiably human element even more valuable. And for anyone who has studied the history of art markets or participates in markets now, that is an 
obviously true statement. That's something that we can empirically prove. Um, Walter Benjamin is still relevant. Um, and if you're not familiar with Walter Benjamin's um, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, and it's um, an essay book from the 1930s, and it's brilliant. But what Benjamin explains is that when we introduce reproductive technologies, um, we start to see original objects, human-made objects differently, and they have what he calls an aura. There is something special about them that makes them more valuable than the copy. And this is easily provable in auction records. You know, Paintings are more valuable than prints. Paintings are more valuable than photographs. Buyers perceive that something actually touched by the artist or singular and unique has more value. And I trust that to be true based on my studies, based on what I'm seeing with my clients, and based on what we're doing in firm. We're actually responding in a very similar way because we're not dumb. We know that we could easily be replaced by ChatGPT. I mean, we definitely had clients come in and say, hey, I wrote this whole contract on ChatGPT. Can you review it? Um, yes, I can. And that's the human element. And I believe, this might be very utopian, but I believe going forward that um, actual human expertise is going to be even more valuable than it's been in the past. And here's why. So when you've got, let's say you've got a client coming in my office. Let's say it's an online business. There are two folks who are going to collaborate together. And one of them downloaded a contract, a collaboration contract from LegalZoom. And the other one read it and was like, okay, well, let's add in a few things from ChatGPT. Nobody in that scenario knows what they're reading. Not really. But I do. And the worst disputes that we've ever seen in the office have been contracts downloaded from the internet where neither person really understood what they were signing. They couldn't really read it. And they agreed to things that they didn't intend. And there was no true meeting of the minds. And so to me, that's what a lawyer is for, is to help you achieve a true meeting of the minds. But then we start talking about human beings. These are actual brains and feelings and hearts having a conversation and participating together. And I, in my experience so far, ChatGPT can't replicate that. Maybe eventually, but not today. I think that what one of the things you're hitting on is that like information is not interpretation, right? Thank and you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I, think I love how you things done. <laughs> well, I think legal contracts and I've actually been thinking a lot about AI and the law and that's a whole other conversation we could have. Like really interesting, but mm -hmm. contracts are such a good example of that where the, we like the ability of the layperson to actually understand something like that is really challenging. Um, especially if they're not the, Catherine is, is known for writing very um, plain language contracts for a lot of folks too. So actually contracts that you can read and understand, but if we're talking kind of more like a traditional contract that you would download from LegalZoom and just hope that it covers your ass, right? Um, and it's, it's having access to that information doesn't actually tell you what it means. And especially if we're talking about something like a legal contract where words have different meanings than they do in our everyday parlance, right? It's like, a, it is like a foreign language and there's translations, but translations also lose context. One of my favorite things is to, um, read a, you know, I, I read French and like read like the English translation of it. And you just are like, 
I think we lost something there. Like, even if it was like by a good translator and there's a reason people keep translating books over and over and over again, there's a reason for that. You lose the context. Something happens in that translation. So the information being like directly imparted isn't the same as understanding in context. And I think that when we look at something like online business or IP driven anything, right? The context is so much of it. Why does anyone care that that particular painting was touched by that artist, right? It's entirely contextual. It's entirely Mm -hmm. contextual. Um, Why do people fight about whether or not like a certain Rembrandt was made by somebody in the studio or whether like he finished it or like whatever, right? These things are all Mm -hmm. about context. So I'll be, I don't, I have a hard time imagining a future where AI can provide that kind of context because that context is inherently relational, right? Exactly. And I love that you brought up the word relational, relational, which I want to go back to. But first, I started to see chat GPT as a really um, helpful window into the hive mind. So it will tell you what mass consensus is on a given subject, but that's all it can really do. And so sometimes it's super helpful. I actually do like it for research. So I recently put in, um, what is an artistic legacy? And man, I would have had to read 10 books and do so much sifting and note-taking to get to what it gave me. And all it really gave me was what the consensus is. And then it's my job to build on that consensus and make it identifiably my own. And that's that's actually another part of Popular. It's called the idea-expression dichotomy that ideas are available for everyone. Expression is your unique interpretation of the idea and that belongs to you and that's copyrightable and so to me chat gpt and, and similar platforms they're for ideas and, and generating ideas and maybe skipping that really onerous stuff of research but not for actual human expression yeah we shall see um what were you thinking about relational you said you wanted to come back to that mm, yeah so we have tore apart the law firm after Andy Warhol Foundation, Google Goldsmith, and, and the entrance of AI into the legal world, really trying to ask, why do we exist? You know, what, what, why do our clients need us? Why will people keep calling me a problem? And we realized that we practice um, relational law. Like, we have very long-term relationships with our clients. Um, most, most lawyers are really transactional. It's kind of one and done. Someone comes into the lease. Is this lease correct? You know, does it say what it's supposed to say? And then you don't hear from them again for a long time. Um, we are in the business of asking, should you be signing a lease at all? Is this the right time for you to be taking on a commercial space? You know, let's look at your profits and losses and let's see what's going on with your family. And but it becomes this... Um, very personal and it's very human centric and we decided that we would dive deeply in that what's what we really wanted um we wanted relationships with our clients um and we wanted to foster relationships between our clients and we just we wanted to build this community that would be where everyone would benefit as we learned more and studied more and practiced more and Again, I don't know that a machine can replicate that because that's networked knowledge 
between humans. I mean, I know that's in theory what AI is, but it's different when you're talking about bonds of, of trust and um, kind of a willingness to experiment or willingness to, to receive wisdom. Again, these are relational, and it's one of my favorite words right now. I can't stop using it. <laughs> so... I have 20 million more questions. Um, but I guess what I'd like to end with is, you know, what is, mm-hmm. what is your vision for this future? Right. You talk about, you know, you have a kid, you have, are having impact on people's legacies actively through your work. You help people to plan for that. People who have made great work and are trying to figure out those next steps. Like what, what do you want out of this? Yeah. Um, what I wish everyone, everyone near me, but also just for everyone, um, would focus on is their behavior instead of the rules. Just in conversations around AI and around intellectual property, around copyright, appropriation, trademark, these questions around how far can I push it? What can I get away with? And instead of asking, what can I get away with? Ask, you know, what kind of social contract do I want to have? What kind of world do I want to build? What sorts of relational engagements do I want to have with the people I admire and the people who admire me and the people with whom I collaborate? Because in my academic and professional experience, how we treat others matters so much more than what the law actually says. People don't come into my office understanding the difference between copyright and trademark most of the time. But they understand what it feels like when a collaborator oversteps or when they overstep. And I find that in practice, when you tell someone what to do with their intellectual property, what they can and can't do, that creates more compliance than a nasty season to this. That building those bonds and thinking about your work in a collaborative way um, creates a virtuous or a virtuous cycle, which can be virtual, but mostly it creates a virtuous cycle of respecting yourself as a creator. This is mine. It is worthy of protection. But understanding that someone may want to, it's a little porous. It's very porous. They're going to engage with you. They're going to quote you. And what sort of social contract are you going to ask for? Because you can choose. I mean, that's the secret to the whole thing. Is as you participate in making choices and you're building the world bit by bit. And that's where thinking like an ancestor comes back in, back kind of to the beginning, is thinking transgenerationally. Like, how was I treated? And do I want to, do I want to continue that treatment? What world do I want to build? It sounds really utopian, but it can be a minute-to-minute activity. Yeah. And it does sound utopian, but I think something I wrote about recently, um, you know, we think about what those what those circles of impact are, right? And it's like mm-hmm. when you actually do think about your direct relationships, whether it's your family, your immediate community, your direct business relationships, people that read your work, you actually do have a lot of impact on how things happen there, right? Versus does Mark Andreessen care about the fact that I've been 
trolling him for three months? No, Mark Andreessen does not care about the fact that I was trolling him for three months. But a lot of you read what I wrote about him, right? And read what I was trying to say about that and how we interact with these ideas. And in those spaces, there is a lot of impact. So it is utopian, but it's also it's also very achievable within those realms of direct relationality. Right. And so in so many ways, our closer community matters more. That's really who you're dealing with and really who you're impacted by on a daily basis, not necessarily these massive macro events. And so keeping your side of the street clean in your community can be your focus. And over time, that builds a legacy. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you bringing your vast and varied experience um, to this topic and helping uh, me to feel a little bit calmer and place some context around it. Um, and I think also just to offer that clarity around, you know, what we actually do have control over to some extent while the, um, while the big boys in the courts figure out what they're going to say. Um, Catherine, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your firm? implementlegal.com is the place to go and i actually love instagram so implement.legal is is our uh is that called a handle i'm so old and out of it um or or username handle username there we go implement.legal and i am the boss divine okay we'll link all that up in the show notes Catherine. thank you so much for your time and your brilliance today i really appreciate it thank you for having me All right, y'all, and I will see you next time. Bye for now.